Imagine coming home and turning on the television. You want to see what's on the 6 o'clock news. And instead, you see a broadcast featuring the President of the United States warning the American people of an existential crisis brought on by the imminent threat of nuclear weapons. Within the past week, unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Now imagine hearing that news and having your reaction not be one of fear, terror, panic, uncertainty, but relief that the president had finally caught up with what you knew for weeks. Welcome to Miami in October of 1962. It's obviously a little bit reductive. You know, the whole nuclear war thing does lead people to worry a bit. But at the same time, the rest of the world turned its eyes to Miami as the Cuban Missile Crisis became a crisis. Parts of Miami looked to the rest of the world and asked, where have you been? So we're going to take a look at one of the better known chapters in American history, but try to look at it through a hyper-local lens and find out how exactly did the Cuban Missile Crisis impact Miami on this day, October 22nd, 1962, the day John F. Kennedy introduced most of the world to what would be known as the Cuban Missile Crisis, and Miami found itself in the crosshairs of global attention and nuclear annihilation. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, to reiterate, I don't want to imply that the Cuban Missile Crisis wasn't a big deal in Miami. It was an enormous deal. It impacted every aspect of everyday life. However, any story involving Cuba has a very clear connection to Miami through its refugee community. And when I say Miami wasn't surprised, what I mean is that a number of people in Miami, both inside and outside that refugee community, was roughly aware of what Kennedy was going to say weeks or even months in advance. The streets of Miami and Washington, D.C. were full of intrigue about the possibilities of the Soviet Union arming and empowering Cuba to present a military threat to the United States. It was such a topic of intrigue that Kennedy was asked about this very question 
during a press conference in August of 1962. We don't have uh, complete information about what's going on in Cuba, but in the sense the troops, the word troops are generally used, they've had military advisory mission there for a long period of time. So there may be additional military advisory personnel there or technicians, but in the question of, of troops, as, I, as it's generally understood, uh, we do not have evidence that there are Russian troops there. Whoops. There were troops in Cuba, Soviet troops, 43,000 of them, more than four times the amount that the Central Intelligence Agency estimated were present, and there were plans for missiles. Despite the undercount on troops, the CIA did have an idea of what was going on in Cuba. How so? We can credit JM Wave, the codename for a major covert operations base located in Miami-Dade County. It was headquartered in what was then Building 25 at the former Richmond Naval Air Station, which is now part of the University of Miami's South Campus. It was a hub of CIA activity at a time when Fidel Castro was among the top targets for the agency. With such an important and significant CIA base of operation in town, it's no surprise that occasionally information would leak out down here that might not be accessible in other parts of the country or the world. We now know, thanks to a further reporting of the record by the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, that while the president delivered his speech on October 22nd, he was actually made aware by the CIA of the presence of these missiles a few days earlier, on October 16th. However, Miamians who picked up the Miami News on Sunday, October 7th, read a story by Hal Hendricks, the Latin America editor for the newspaper, entitled Soviets Launch Work on Six Missile Bases. Again, a full two weeks before the president is fully briefed on the possibility of missiles in Cuba, Hal Hendricks is breaking the story to South Florida. How is this possible? Some suspect that Hal had a very good relationship with the CIA. Others accuse payoffs and influence, although that's never been proven. It's much more likely that a good reporter got a tip and worked the story. More detail about how that story came together actually features in a recently published book entitled A Nervous Man Shouldn't Be Here in the First Place, The Life of Bill Baggs. And yes, that is the same Bill Baggs who is the namesake of Bill Baggs State Park on Key Biscayne. But Baggs was an editor at the Miami News at the same time as Hendricks. Reading from the excerpt, it really speaks to the work that newspaper reporters did and do and how these kinds of stories can come together. Quoting from the book now. On the morning of October 6th, 1962, before he left for work, Bill Baggs received a call on the secure line at home. No one knows if the call came directly from President John F. Kennedy or one of his aides, but whoever called provided Baggs with intelligence on Cuba, a list of possible missile launch sites on the island. Baggs immediately contacted his Latin American editor, Hal Hendricks, who for weeks had been running down rumors that the Soviets were building half a dozen, maybe more, ground-to-ground intermediate-range missile launch sites throughout Cuba, capable of blasting missiles with nuclear warheads as far south as the Panama Canal and as far north as the interior of the United States. The list provided by Baggs confirmed Hendricks's leads. Hendricks's reporting really illustrates something that's quite clear when you look at the record of the newspapers around the time of Kennedy's announcement. And that is the fact that the Cuba story was almost accepted as the status quo. The front pages of the Herald and the Miami News were splashed with stories about possible Cuban aggression in September 
Going back to early and mid-September, those newspapers had a multitude of stories about Cuba. By the time you get to October 20th, 21st, and 22nd, there are far fewer mentions of Cuba on the front page. For example, looking at the Miami News on October 21st, 1962, the only possible allusion to the Cuba story is a headline that reads, quote, training exercise, Keys team with U.S. troops. Obviously, we now know why those troops were accumulating in the Florida Keys. But the explanation was it was a regular routine military game type activity, and it had really nothing to do with the Cuba question. The Miami Herald's reporting on the activities in the Caribbean was a little bit more incredulous about the idea that it couldn't be attached to the Cuba question. But still, it was largely framed as a military exercise, nothing connected to a specific reaction on the part of the United States. After nearly two months of speculation and a week of top-secret work in the White House between the President and his National Security Council, Kennedy faced the public, shared the news, and announced what the plan would be. The United States would attempt a quarantine on all offensive military equipment under shipment to Cuba is being initiated. All ships of any kind bound for Cuba, from whatever nation or port, will, if found to contain cargoes of offensive weapons, be turned back. This quarantine will be extended, if needed, to other types of cargo and carriers. So why a quarantine? Why not a blockade? It turns out the biggest difference between a blockade and a quarantine is the name. A blockade implies a state of war, and so the United States did not want to use that term when discussing its action. But in reality, the functional difference was virtually indistinguishable. The hope was that this quarantine would force the Soviet Union to the table, allow the two sides to negotiate, and keep Miami and other southern cities from being blown off the map. While Kennedy's official announcement may have been something that South Floridians were anticipating for weeks, actually hearing the words, actually seeing the speech, must have changed the mindset of the average South Floridian. October 1962. America's defense muscle heads for Florida after President Kennedy's announcement of the weapons blockade of Cuba. Truck convoys roll through Miami, one after another. Then the trains came, 150 cars in length, loaded with troops, tanks, artillery, anti-aircraft missiles. The United States was in the middle of the biggest peacetime military buildup in its history. Many people thought we were at the brink of war. That is from a documentary produced by WTVJ, then Channel 4 in Miami, the voice Ralph Rennick, who was basically the voice of news in South Florida for nearly half a century. That documentary was produced in 1962 and released in 1963, looking back on the events of the Cuban Missile Crisis in our community. It's a really interesting look at the perspective of the South Floridian during the crisis. I encourage you to take a look in the description of this episode on your podcast provider, and you'll see a link so you can see the whole thing. But that excerpt really highlights the fact that things changed overnight in South Florida, from a period of anticipation to a period of action. The biggest material change for South Floridians, whether they were civilians or military, was preparation. If you were in the military, you were likely being imported to Miami by train or boat 
or bus. If you were a civilian who lived in Miami, your preparation involved buying necessary materials, civil defense agents recommended two weeks worth of food, and being aware of local fallout shelters. It is this last point that became a bit of a scandal in South Florida during the second week of the crisis, when there was a growing realization that local civil defense forces in South Florida were completely unprepared, not just for this crisis, but any crisis altogether. The organization had not dedicated really any number of fallout shelters necessary to protect the community. If you called and had questions, you better call between Monday and Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. because there would be no one to answer on the weekends, even during the height of nuclear crisis. On the military side, things were much different. Wheels began to turn almost immediately. On the first day Kennedy is briefed about the possible placement of missiles on the island, his XCOM, or Executive Committee, meets. And in that meeting, Miami is discussed defense, and missile placement to protect from ground-to-ground or air-to-ground attack is of the utmost importance. So how does the American government approach this missile crisis? More missiles. Nike Hawk and Nike Hercules missiles, potentially with nuclear capability, are spread out in a variety of locations throughout South Florida. Some of those locations are in the Florida Keys. A large number of them are in Miami-Dade County, including one site, the HM-69 Nike Hercules missile site, located in what is now Everglades National Park, has become a bit of a tourist attraction. While that one site highlights the random nature of the placement in today's context, it's really important to understand that these locations were truly scattered all throughout the community. You had this location in the park, but you also had another missile installation near what is now Florida International University. Other missiles were located at Opalaka Airport, and yet more were located at Naval Air Station Richmond, right next to what is currently Zoo Miami. Hialeah, Carroll City, Chrome Avenue. You couldn't travel far in Miami-Dade County without encountering some sort of missile installation meant to protect the community from obliteration. It's also important to remember that these missiles, while a show of force, were active weapons of war and that for every missile, there was a trained soldier who could potentially be given orders to end the world. Phil Latzman of WLRN spoke to one of these soldiers to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the crisis. His name was Dr. Henry Mack IV. Now at the time, Dr. Mack had no direct connection to South Florida. He was assigned to a Nike missile base in Carrollton, Michigan. However, he would eventually find his way to Sunrise, and impact the community through business and education. But at one point, he could have led to its destruction. It was probably the most challenging assignment that I had in my 20 years of service, knowing that if I were to fire the first missile, 
I would be the single individual that started World War III. And those 13 days for me were on the front lines with my missiles at battle stations, prepared to fire within one minute. Those 13 days in October are oftentimes talked about in context of diplomacy and war. The brinksmanship that was required to bring Nikita Khrushchev to the table, discuss a possible solution, ultimately walk back the missiles in Cuba, remove American missiles from Europe, and find a way to get back to where the two countries were before they approached a nuclear holocaust. But while that is the big story of the quote-unquote great men like Kennedy, Khrushchev, McNamara, McBundy, and Rusk, there is a whole other story here. And that's the story of everyday people in our community considering every moment they're awake the possibility that it might be their last moment. That everything they know, that everything they've built, and everything they loved could be wiped off the map with the blink of an eye and the push of a button. That's traumatic. And though the Cuban Missile Crisis begins to unwind at the end of October 1962, and a number of active duty troops begin to leave Miami in November of 1962, those Nike missiles remain for years as a constant reminder of the threat that once was presented to the community, and that could be again. A kind of scar on the Miami that could never exist again in a post-nuclear world. As always, I want to take a little time and give credit to some of the work done by other organizations, websites, and groups that helped in the production of today's episode. Uh, first off, I want to give special credit to the Nike Historical Society at nikemissile.org and Ed's Nike Missile website at ed-thielen.org. Uh, that really just has a remarkable collection of information about these Nike missile sites uh, and their location both in Florida and outside the state. Um, I also want to give credit to the uh, JFK Presidential Library. Uh, a lot of the audio you heard of President Kennedy and his advisors comes from the library's archive. Uh, there's also a great website that I'll be linking to in the description of this episode as well uh, that walks through day by day the actions and decisions and deliberations of President Kennedy and his executive council and how they work through this crisis. As I did before, I want to credit WTVJ uh, for their excellent uh, documentary that they re-released uh, as part of their 70th anniversary celebration, uh, re recovering uh, the coverage of Ralph Rennick on the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, I want to thank WLRN for their work. And in general, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, as always, uh, this month's episode deals with the Cuban Missile Crisis, some heavy stuff. Uh, hopefully next month and as we go forward, we'll find a couple of lighter-hearted things to deal with. I can't imagine it gets much more serious than nuclear war, but we'll see. It is Miami after all. As always, uh, if I can ask you, I'd appreciate you to make sure you are following us on your preferred podcast platform, whether that is Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, wherever it may be. Um, please do follow if you like it then leave us feedback. Uh, five stars is great. A little bit more detail into your review is even better. It really does help people find the show. And the more people that find the show, the better it works out for everyone. So I do greatly appreciate that. I also want you to make sure you're following us on social media, This Day Miami Pod on Twitter and Facebook. If you search that on both, you'll find it. 
episodes post there. Additional pieces of information are posted there as well. It's a useful place to go and dig. Um, and finally, thisdaymiamipod.com. In the process of uploading transcripts to the website, as well as references back to each of our episodes, uh, please do bookmark that and visit from time to time. Speaking of time, that's the end of our time today. And so until next time, as always, thank you for listening. And I've been Matthew Bunch. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.